First Timothy chapter three. Let's review first Timothy altogether. This is Paul's letter to young Timothy, his son in the faith. He left him at Ephesus while Paul went on to Macedonia. And the first charge that Paul says, I left you at Ephesus for was to teach or to rebuke some that they teach no other doctrine. So Timothy apparently was very good with doctrine. He was perhaps maybe an intellectual. He knew doctrine very well. He had Paul's heart and he left Paul up Timothy Paul left Timothy at Ephesus to correct doctrine. And we understand that the doctrinal issues that arose had to be some Jewish or some Judaizers because Paul goes on to talk about rebuking all the vain jangling, the, um, uh, the endless genealogies and fables. The endless genealogies and fables is a reference to the oral Torah. You would not know that unless you understood the oral Torah. The oral Torah was developed after the time of Ezra. Ezra, of course, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra came back about the 5th century B.C. to bring about the Levitical reforms as a newly formed nation of Israel has built Zerubbabel's temple and the reinstituting the priesthood. And his, he was a scribe and a Levite, and he brought about new teaching. And to capture his teaching, the elders with him began to launch the schools of Ezra, the schools of the sages, and that became what is now known as rabbinical Judaism. That became Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul was of that flavor. But in that time between Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Gospels, about 400 years, you had the creation, though they would say it was never created. It was always there. But basically, we understand it as the creation of the oral Torah. The oral Torah is a Torah that is not written down. It is oral as opposed to the written law, the Torah, which we have as the first five books of the Bible. They have since copied down the oral Torah in what is now called the Talmud. It was codified in the second century, in the fourth century, depending on if it was the Jerusalem Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud. And all of it has to do with fables and genealogies. And what they basically are doing with the oral Torah is interpreting and reading in between the lines. And to be honest and respectful, because I study the Talmud, uh, they were just making stuff up. And to read some of it, it sounds like Monty Python's holy hand grenade. <laughs> I kid you not. I even quote some of it in our botany book because I have to go through some of the Talmud to talk about uh, their plant identification for the incense and the botanical recipe. But honestly, you read some of the oral Torah, some of the Talmud, and you're like, that's totally, that's holy hand grenade. Thou shalt not count to four because it's too much. And you shall not stop at two because that's too little. Three shalt thou count to and no more. Then thou shalt. That sounds like the Torah to me. Um, Talmud, not the Torah. So some of the issues Paul was dealing with at Ephesus was the oral Torah. Oral Torah has a bunch of fables it deals with. It tells stories and endless genealogies because you're always quoting somebody in the oral Torah. You're always saying Rabbi Shimon says Rabbi Haggai says that Rabbi and nobody would ever speak of their own authority. And so then Paul transitions and he talks about, listen, uh, the law is good if you know how to use it lawfully. And then I love what Paul says. He simplifies the law and says, listen, the law teaches people what is good and bad. That's what we use the law for. And he goes on to say, look, the law is for people who are disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, for whoremongers, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. That's what the law is for. Why are we making it any more than that? Now, keep in mind that Paul was an adherent to the oral Torah. As a Pharisee, that's where he lived. So he's deconstructing and destroying all of that foolishness. Also, when Peter says we've not followed cunningly devised fables, that's a diss on the oral Torah. I follow a, a rabbi, uh, a, a, like a real rabbi, not like a messianic rabbi, a rabbi who is 
a Torah observant rabbi, and one of the rules of oral Torah is that it's still being written. Oral Torah is open, and it's still being added to. So when Peter says in the first century, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, he is ripping on the oral Torah, which he would have been an adherent to because that permeated the culture of first century. So then chapter two rolls around. Actually, chapter one concludes with uh, Paul talking about he's delivered to Satan, uh, Alexander and Hymenius, that they learn not to blaspheme. So then chapter one, chapter two rolls over and he says, uh, therefore, I, I would that all prayer, uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving thanks be made for all men. And we talked about how you could see Paul's missing his friends, Alexander and Hymenius. These were fellow ministers Otherwise, why would you name them? Otherwise, why would Paul have authority to deliver them? I also think we should note Paul is calling them by name, which means Timothy knew who they were. Otherwise, Paul would say these two guys. I know some ministers, but he names them by name because that's going to mean something to Timothy. Remember the, the, the person to whom this is written in the moment is one man, Timothy. So every, you have to consider this is a personal letter between a father and his spiritual son concerning ministry. So when he says Alexander and Hymenius, these are friends of Timothy as well. So it's going to hit him pretty hard. And that's why I believe chapter 2 rolls over and he says we should be praying more. We can't afford to lose anybody else. And so he goes on to talk about um, one mediator between God and man. And then he says, I want men to lift up holy hands everywhere without wrath and doubting. So he's addressing men's stereotypical image uh, issues. And I like stereotypes because there is truth. There is truth to all stereotypes. Amen. Never, nobody's ever heard of a slam dunking Eskimo. That fits no stereotype at all. No. And nobody's ever heard of a marathoning sumo. There's no truth to that. Maybe a marathon eating session. Because to be a sumo, you got to put in a lot of calories. They purposely get that big. And it's an art and, and a sport. It's not just a bunch of fat guys in diapers slapping each other. <laughs> For what it's worth, I used to watch the annual Ondekoza competitions when I lived in Seattle. Because, of course, we did. That's what we did. So I used to watch the championships, the grand, sumo grand champion, and there's a sport to it. Stereotypes are based on truth. If that offends you, stop feeding the stereotype. Don't be the stereotype. Don't live up to it if it's a negative one. He says men, their issues are wrath and doubting, or wrath and, and dissensions, wrath and holding grudges. So Paul says, let's deal with men. Men, let's lift up holy hands and let's drop the attitude and the grudges. This is kind of stereotypical men. We kind of grunt and hold grudges. But then verse 9 says, let's address women in a broad spectrum. And uh, women ought to adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, sobriety, not with broided hair, gold or pearls of costly array. And uh, Dr. Cephas just reminded me, we had discussed this several years ago, that this may have something to do with the cult of Artemis, where the women who would go to the cult of Artemis uh, would dress the, in a certain way to demonstrate their allegiance and their piety and their worship towards Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility. And these women may just come over to the house of God and dress the same way. And you're not sure who, which God are you serving? There's nothing wrong with braiding your hair. There's nothing wrong with pearls. There's nothing wrong with gold. The Bible describes all these as being in heaven. But if you have a come to associate it with 
Demon worship, let's drop that. Let's dress as women that become godly. Let's show, let's distinguish ourselves. What you'll find throughout the history of the church is the church is always adjusting culture. It's adjusting its norms to lean against the world. I'm very much against nose piercings. Every person I personally know with nose piercings has a sexual assault history. I'm also personally against thumb rings. Every person I knew back in the day with a thumb ring was a homosexual. If the world is using certain jewelry to distinguish themselves, I'll not touch that jewelry as long as the world stands. You can fight for your right if you want to, but there's someone like me who's going to be wondering, what's your unresolved sexual trauma? And are you gay? Why do you have a thumb ring? Now, I don't, I don't condemn people when I see that. Honestly, when I see nose rings in guys or girls, I wonder what, what's, what happened. I just saw a girl I know yesterday, and sweet girl, I know she has a horrific past. She has a nose stud now. And I thought, girl, you're feeding the stereotype. And just as I'm talking out loud, I'm thinking, you know, it's real popular now, that, that septum stud which always goes back to the bone in the nose pagans that lived in the Stone Age, worshiped demons and kidnapped each other. How in the world have we brought that full circle now? I, where was I at? Doesn't matter. I was running my mouth and offending people. I saw a girl and she had one of those like horseshoe hoops in her nose. And, you know, and I was joking with her. I don't care that she has it. I don't know who she is. We'll never see her again. And I said, did that hurt? She said, actually, no. She said some other piercing hurt more. Because this was a big, heavy gauge bar through her nose. I said, have you seen those YouTube videos where those friends put nine volt batteries to those things? She didn't find it as amusing as I did. I mean, I don't care that she's got it, but I'm just trying to small talk her while she's making my coffee or something. And, uh, but I was sincere. I was like, I've seen them. I, that, that to me, that's what I would do. If you were a friend of mine and you fell asleep on my couch and you had like a big heavy gauge horse, I would, I would want to see, can we connect? And let's see. I don't have a nine volt. Yeah, you do. You have a smoke detector somewhere. Go raid the smoke detector, push that button. It pulls out, make sure. Uh, yep. And just see if that hurts their nose. Like it does your tongue. I'm of the mindset, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. All right, that aside, let's dress like we're holy. That's the whole point. Dress like you're holy. And then we discussed uh, some of these hard verses here about Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And again, one of the other lines of evidence, a historical hermeneutic would say, the cult of Artemis taught that women created everything, that woman was made first, and that if you didn't worship Artemis, you could die in childbirth. If that's an accurate historical doctrine, then you can understand why Paul would tell Timothy, remind the young women in, those, in your region, they're not going to die in childbirth betraying Artemis. They're going to have babies because God made them to have babies. And they'll be saved if they continue in faith, charity, holiness, and sobriety. That is considered some of the hardest passages and the pastoral epistles to interpret because of the context. And anyway, so that brings us to chapter three. And this is my favorite passage in, I think, all of Timothy because of the qualifications for leadership. And this is where I will stop and quote Dr. Barclay and say, if you're not a leader or don't want to be, why not? If you're not a leader and you don't want to be, why not? Actually, he said it more harshly. He said, shame on you. 
Shame on you for not wanting to rise up in the church. Most of us got born again because a leader somewhere led us to Christ. Leaders lead and they led us to Christ. We're only here because somebody answered the call to leadership. We're not all called to the same level of leadership, but we can all aspire to a great place of leadership in Christ. So there's a lot to be said about this. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Much to be said here. I guess we begin by saying bishop is the word episkopos, which means overseer. If a man desires the office of a church overseer or spiritual overseer, he doesn't desire a good title. He doesn't desire a good name. He desires a good work because overseeing is work. We do have this kind of, it, it's a human condition, but we have an issue in the American church where people have to have seven and eight titles in front of their name to let you know just how anointed they are. Even Jesus is satisfied with just one, Lord. I think if he had a business card, it wouldn't have like seven New Testament titles in front of it. Though he is everything. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> they, when they came to him in the garden and they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He didn't say, um, that's Lord of Lords, King of Kings too, the apostle, high priest of your faith, the bishop and overcomer. You know, he didn't, because that's how a lot of our preachers would be. Uh, that's apostle to you. That's the right reverend, holy right reverend. That's the elder bishop, evangelist, deacon, is... Are you, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. I am. That's all he said. Guilty. Here I am. He didn't have to defend a title. And here you're not looking for a title, though some denominations are really drunk on them. You're looking for a work. And this is why we don't have more leaders in the kingdom because folks don't want to do the work. Folks don't want to do the work. They want to enjoy the work. And that's why we say the kingdom is built by a few, but enjoyed by many. That's why Dr. Barclay, my pastor, would say, shame on you for not wanting to step up and do the work. If any man desire this office, he desires a good work. It doesn't even say a good thing. It is a work, pure and simple. Now, Titus goes over. We can, if you want, let's jump to Titus chapter 1 real quick. That's two, two books over. Titus chapter 1. Verse 5 says, For this cause left I thee in Crete. This sounds just like 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, I, I encourage you. Timothy to stay in Ephesus. Now Paul's telling Titus, I left you in Crete. Both cases were to oversee churches and take care of them. He said that you should set in order the things which are wanting or lacking or inferior and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So uh, Titus here is a pastor. He's been left in Crete by the apostle Paul to clean up the churches, further establish governments and administrations. Ordain elders. And then it says in verse 6, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right unruly, for a bishop, verse 7. This passage here helps us create a synonym out of elder and bishop. Now, bishop is a New Testament term, episkopos, but elder is an Old Testament concept. So here Paul begins to make a transition. He equates the two. He's coming from a Jewish perspective, that is of elders, Remember, Israel came out of Egypt with 70 elders. We'll look at that here in a second in Exodus chapter 12 and then 24 and then Numbers 11. Paul's coming from the Jewish context where you have elders that help govern the people. But now the Greek concept, of course, is overlapping and they have episkopos. Where we get the term episcopal, episcopalian, it means overseer. 
Elder just means elder. But what the job they do is oversee and they help. So we equate the two here. And I would also add this to further confuse you or help you understand it. All pastors are elders and bishops, but not, el- all, not every elder bishop is a pastor. Now, I don't want to split hairs. A lot of different denominations use the terms interchangeably, and it really, it's just how they term the leadership. Some of my friends are considered bishops. They're a pastor. Some of my friends are a pastor and a bishop over a, a district. Uh, my friend Bishop Vickers here in town, he's Church of God. He's the district bishop. He oversees the bishop. Uh, oversees the district for the Church of God in this part of Tennessee. He's a pastor, but we all call him the bishop. I'm not going to split hairs. I don't really care. Technically, we could call some of you bishops because you oversee departments. It's just an overseer. It's a superintendent. And in the end, I don't really care so much what the title is. I don't believe the Lord cares too much, so much as the position is anointed and filled for the administration of the kingdom. All right. That's a lot, but governments and administrations is my thing, and so we can stay here and talk all day long. I want to show you some things, though, because the the thrust of the passage in Timothy 3 is the qualifications of an elder. But we have to back up and know what Paul's mindset is as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. What is his understanding of an elder? Because that's what he's building upon here. The New Testament builds upon the Old Testament. So let's jump back to Exodus. Let's look at elders. Because what he's doing here is he's looking at those who desire the work of an elder. And again, elders and bishops are interchangeable. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 50th day of the second month after departing out of the land of Egypt. When we come to the the wilderness of Elam, and we come into the 12 pools of Elam there, and you have 70 palm trees... And one of the things that you see with the 70 palm trees is you see a foreshadow of the elder, the Sanhedrin, that uh, what became the Sanhedrin. And we see later in chapter 24 that there is um, 70 elders. Let's jump to Exodus 24. We'll go ahead and jump there just for time's sake. There's too much to cover here. Exodus chapter 24. And he said unto Moses, verse 1, Come up to the Lord thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders. Seventy of the elders. That's what I want you to see. Seventy of the elders. Now, there were more elders, but there's the premier seventy. And then if you jump over to chapter, uh, verse 9, chapter 24, verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. Understanding the seventy Palm trees is important. We cover that in the botany book. But the palm trees end up symbolic, symbolically representing elders. Because elders, like Paul's about to address here, they stand in the congregation taller than everybody else. When you desire the work of an elder or a bishop, what you're testifying is, judge me. See if I stand straight. Palm trees aren't like Hawaiian palms or Florida palms or... Um, what are called fan palms. Most of our palm trees curve, but the date palm is erect. It's upright. It's perfectly straight. And they can grow up to uh, 70, 80, 100 feet tall. It's a tall tree. I think 150 is a record. Can you imagine a palm tree just that straight and tall growing in the desert? You could see it a long way off. 
That's the ministry of the elder. The elder can stand and be seen from a long ways off. They stand up in life. They stand up in, on their job. They stand up in their family. They, they, as Paul will go on to say, they're above reproach. So that's why I wanted to look at the, um, the passage there about the 70 pools, the uh, 70 palm trees and the 12 pools. The 12 pools represent the 12 tribes and the 70 palms represent the elders. And again, that eventually became the Sanhedrin, whose term you probably heard through the Gospels. These are the 70 national leaders. Exodus 15, 27. And they came to Elam, where were 12 wells of water, three score and 10 palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Now, that's what you do as a church or as a Christian. You find a church where there's pools of water and strong elders. Life-giving water and elders. The other thing about the date palm, if it represents the elder, and I believe it does, they provide shade because those palm branches can extend 30 feet. A palm, a palm, they're technically leaves. A palm leaf can be 30 feet long. Can you imagine a leaf that's like from here to the sound booth? It's a lot of shade. And then they can produce up to four or 500 pounds of dates a year, which are about 80% sugar by volume, so that elders don't just provide a beacon of like, look, over there, there's something over there. They also provide shade from the heat and they provide nourishing dates of encouragement. 80% sugar. Very sweet. The pastor isn't so sweet. <laughs> but, but yeah, I am sometimes. <laughs> if I like you. Sorry, Daryl. But the elders, they move among the people and they have those encouraging words. You're going to make it. They provide that oversight that helps sustain you in the waste howling wilderness that is humanity and your life. But one thing I like about the picture of the elders is that they stand up for the local church. You can see them in the community before you ever see the pastor because they're out in the community. They don't work full time at the church. They're in the world. But in the local church, they come and they, they demonstrate to the saints how this thing is livable because the calling of an elder isn't like a ministry calling. It says whosoever desires, which means you can want it. You don't get to want a ministry calling. You're either called or you're not. You're either called by the will of God or you never ever in a million years won't be. So don't try to fabricate it. But the calling of an elder, you can rise up like a date palm and say, I want to be that. And I want to demonstrate to everybody this thing is livable and sustainable, and it will cause your life to flourish. And again, to quote Dr. Barclay, shame on any believer who doesn't want to be that. But maybe you didn't know that you could obtain to the office of an elder, should you want to. It's not easy. That's why we're about to look at 17 quali qualifications and criteria. That sounds pretty legalistic. It is. And I love checklists. Amen. So look at Numbers 11 because this helps build another pattern. So we see this thing built. They come out of Israel. Uh, I'm sorry, they come out of Egypt. They already have elders and 70 are selected to go up. 70 of the elders. 70 of the elders go up unto uh, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai. So we kind of begin to see, I think it's inferred by the Jews at that time when he God wanted, why else would he call 70 of the elders and not all, all 100 of them, 200, however many they were. 70 is this specific number. It's a number that plays out over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It's a significant biblical number, like three, like 12, like 40. And so 
The date palms represent them. They're upright. They're erect. They have fruit and shade. They symbolize that there's life here because the date palms flourish at the oasis. Date palms need water too, but they can advertise, if you can make it here, we can help you. That's why it's so critical for the elder to be upright. Amen. I, I should say this before we advance. There's only a couple ways to take out a church. You either take out the pastor, take out the pastor's family. So that's his job to protect himself, guard himself, guard his marriage, guard his kids. Or you can begin to sow discord among the elders and the officers. Uh, you're not going to really split a church if you have a good pastor and tight eldership. Because between the, that group, the, the pastor and the eldership, you're going to be able to police any other kind of dingling that comes in. You're going to be able to isolate any wolf, any tension, any strife. You're going to be able to move in there as a unified body of elders. Because again, the pastor is the elder. He's the chief elder. But that group of elders, which is the term presbytery or presbyteros, they're going to be able to relegate any or delegate any issue or solve it. The only way to, to, to attack a church is to attack the elders, attack the pastor, attack their marriages, attack their kids. And that's about the only way to take down a good church. So that's why we pray for the elders. That's why you pray for the pastor, because in military, the best way to sow discord is to shoot the officers, because then the grunts don't know who to take orders from. They said on Normandy Beach, if, you, if you're familiar with Normandy, that uh, I think uh, the average P, uh, grunt was promoted in five seconds because they dropped the boat doors and their officers got mowed down. And all of a sudden you went from being a GI, general enlisted, all of a sudden you're captain because all the other officers were just mowed down in front of you. Five seconds to promotion. Not a good way to be promoted. Anyway, Numbers 11, we're a couple of years out of Egypt and the people are crying out for food. They don't like the daily manna. You know, they're getting bored with the pastor's stories and his sermons. They want something different and creative and but then again, if he serves something different and creative, they feel like, well, this is new. Why are we doing something new? <laughs> and they weep under Moses, and he's really put out. Like, I could deal with those Egyptians. I, I could wage war with the Ethiopians. But these Israelites, Lord, have mercy. And so the Lord cry, Moses cries out, verse 13, Numbers eleven thirteen. 13, When should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. And I'm not able to bear all this people alone because it's too heavy for me. And there where we see Moses and the issue, the burden is too heavy for him. He can't handle this burden. It's not even necessarily a natural burden. It's an emotional one. Bellyaching congregations are an emotional tax on God's man. The burden of the ministry is the people. And one of the jobs of the pastor is to disciple the saints so that they're, they're no longer babies. Even in a household, you at some point stop having kids and your kids grow up and they begin to bear the burden of the household and they help mom and dad transition to the next stage of their life. Which is also why at some point you have to stop having kids because you won't have the strength, the energy, or the focus to give those young babies what they require justly out of a parent. There is an age where you should stop having kids. I really firmly believe it. Otherwise, it's not fair to that kid. Grand, Dad's more of a grandpa. He doesn't have energy to throw the football anymore. He can hardly chase him in his hover round in the backyard. <laughs> Amen. So he's grieved and he's, it's a tremendous burden. 
And so he says, I'm not able to bear all this people alone because it's too heavy for me. And if you deal with me thus with me, kill me, I pray thee out of your hand. So we do see pastors, because that's what Moses is, is an executive pastor. He's a shepherd. He's suicidal. The burden of God's people is that heavy. This is a tremendous man, one of the greatest men of the entire Old Testament. Saw God face to face just a year or two prior to this and is still saying, kill me. Not that he doesn't love the people, but that this is how, this is how burdensome congregations can be when they're nagging and nitpicking and, eat and discontented and can't be satisfied. Nothing's ever good enough for them. Why are you grinning, Pastor Caleb? Does this sound familiar to you? Well, a little too much? Why is Miss Tiffany looking all bashful? Yeah. Welcome to ministry. That's why they used to teach a class at Rhema on don't go into the ministry. And that lowered the suicide rate at Bible school. You see this great man who did not fear Pharaoh, this great man who held up the, the staff at the Red Sea, Fearless, 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 fearless. And now because of the burden of the people that he lives for, he says, kill me. I want to take care of them. I can't. But they're whining. They're nitpicking. They're offense at me. They're unforgiveness. Just kill me. If I have found favor in your sight, kill me. <laughs> Lord, do me a favor and kill me. I'm not Moses. I would say, Lord, kill them. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my hobbies. I love me. Uh, this is a new side of the cross, Lord. Moses, old covenant. I'm new covenant. Don't kill me. Kill them. <laughs> and let me not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know. Now, this is important. Paul's establishing a New Testament precedent for elders in 1 Timothy 3, but he has this passage here, and he knows that elders are selected by the executive. Yes, sir. Elders are executive by, elders are selected by the executive. Now, this is different. There's four types of church governments. You have executive government, which is what we are. I believe it's the most biblical. You have presbyteros or Presbyterian form of government where the elders rule everything and they hire and fire the pastor. You have episkopos, which means bishops oversee local churches. So the pastor's not in charge, the bishop is. In the Presbyterian form of government, the pastor's not in charge, the elder board is. And then you have congregational, which is by far the worst and just happens to coincide with the founding of our nation where we voted. You never let God's people vote. And the hypocrisy of the congregational style voting is that most folks won't come to church unless there's a vote. And if we were congregational, I would publicly read your tithe record. You would have to qualify, unlike the United States where anybody can just vote. I would require that you be a tither, you be a member of good standing, you serve on the ministry of helps, and you're not guilty of any slander, gossip, or behavioral issues in the last year, if we were congregationalists, but we are not, because it's not biblical. It's American, but it's not founded in Scripture. Because when Egypt was given a chance to vote, they said, let's go back to slavery, because that's how dumb God's people are in mass. It's called the madness of crowds. He says, you get me 70 men of the elders of Israel. Again, more than just 70 
elders in Israel, but you select me 70. God said 70 at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24. Now he's telling Moses, you get 70 whom you know. These are men Moses picks. The congregation has no say in it. And the most important thing is that Moses needs to know that these men love him and these men have his heart, and these men support him. Yes, these men serve God, but there is an allegiance to the man who is under the burden of ministry. Because even with great elders, they will never know the burden that's on the preacher. They will never know the spiritual attack. They'll never come near to a fraction of the burden of it. They'll never understand the level of demonic attack, the vain imaginations, the spiritual burden. They'll never understand. Even the best and closest elder to the pastor will never know everything he deals with every day in his life as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a businessman, as a bivocational preacher. And that is why the first time we see an elder board selected, the executive, the pastor, the shepherd, he's the one that picks them. You whom thou knowest to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them into the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand there with thee. And that confirms that these are men that not only serve God, but they love, respect, and support Moses. Not every elder in that congregation supported Moses. They were still elders, but maybe they didn't like his beard. Maybe they didn't like the Ethiopian woman he'd married, because we know that's a problem later, a couple chapters later. Actually, next chapter, chapter 12. We have to have elders that love and respect the pastor. But like we said, how do you attack a church? Well, you can't really tear down a church by attacking sheep. That's weather. That's, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But you can begin to sow discord in the hearts of the elders so they begin to work behind the pastor's back to undermine him. And that, that palm tree that was once erect and upright begins to rot. And that's why we pray for elders, that they weather these storms as well. If I'm the enemy, I'm shooting at the, my enemy's officers. Because that's logical. I'm not just going to take out the grandma. I'm not just going to shoot, you know, the high school kids. I'm taking out the officers. I'm sowing discord at the highest level. He says, let them stand there with thee, and I will come down and talk with thee there. And I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and I will put, put it upon them. So we also see in this elder's ministry that they become a partaker of the pastor's gifting and anointing. If I were an elder for Dr. Barclay, I would have a different grace and an anointing upon me. When I was an elder for Pastor Trey, I took his grace and anointing upon me. I've never been an elder anywhere else. But I can totally understand if I was an elder for other pastors, I would take upon them my anoint, uh, their anointing and their grace, and it would become an extension of my life, and I would operate under it. He says, I'll take of the spirit that's upon you and put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1. If they want the office of an elder, they want a good work. Why? Because there's a burden called ministry, and the burden is spelled P-E-O-P-L-E, people. <laughs> it's enough to drive a pastor to suicide. So the last thing a shepherd needs is an elder or an elder's wife being a belligerent, backstabbing, disgruntled elder. And the devil will work to try to create those in any congregation. Amen. Because then if, it doesn't, if the thing doesn't turn, the pastor's going to have to do something. And doesn't that even look even more uncomfortable? Oh, well, you know... 
Well, you know, we just feel like it's time to sit down Elder Dingwall and his lovely wife, Mrs. Dingwall. And all of a sudden, the church wants to know why. So how do we do that ethically? Do we just say, you know, seasons, seasons. Seasons come and seasons go. Or do we say, well, you know, he's been slandering me on Facebook. He's been running me down to the deacons in the kids' department. He went on a mission trip with another elder, and that elder said, Pastor, this man does not like you anymore. I don't know what's wrong, but you got a problem. Do we, do we air that laundry publicly? How do you handle it? It makes for a mess, which is why we pray for the elders, because they're going to be shot at. But they're going to be shot at not because they stand in some title, but because they receive a measure of the pastor's anointing. That's also why whenever we promote people, I never want to have to demote them because it will take this anointing right here off of them. And as I've taught our guys in private, you never know what you built in private with that anointing. And what happens to what you built when we have to sit you down? It's one thing if we, we send you out by the Spirit of God. We know the Andrews were elders. They pastor their own church now. That, there's nothing lost there. The Scudders were elders. We sent them to Uganda's missionaries. There's nothing lost there. But if we have to demote you because of insubordination or rebellion or you no longer want to stand with us, you no longer are for us, that's going to be an ugly thing. Amen. And yes, elders will disagree, but that's when you get to actually practice submission. Because like Pastor Vaughn and Dr. Barclay have taught, submission begins when you disagree. And if you've never disagreed, then you've never been submitted. It's wonderful, unless you're the one having to submit. <laughs> but you know, we're the best kind of cult. We use only naturally organic, free-range serpents when we snake handle. <laughs> PETA approved. <laughs> yeah, we, we use homegrown, ethically sourced serpents for snake handling. They're part of the SBC. That stands for Southern Baptist Convention. All right. So anyway, uh, verse 25, the Lord came down in the cloud, spake with him, took of the spirit that was upon Moses and gave it to the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. They did not have this working in their life until they were ordained as elders. Now, please, I point this out. This is not just Old Testament. Paul is a Pharisee. He's a Hebrew. He knows the law. He's building upon this pattern here. It still happens to this day in the New Testament. We don't have 70 elders because we don't have a nation. We have basically four elder couples. We have the Andrews as elders, uh, but they pastor a church. We have the Scudders as elders, but they are missionaries to Uganda. But we have four elder couples in-house, and that anointing is upon them to help us oversee and bear the burden that is the congregation. As the congregation gets bigger, we'll need to appoint more elders to help with the bigger burden. At some point, there is this balance where you don't really need anymore. If a nation only needed 70, I think five or six ought to do. At some point, you're just giving it out like Chick-fil-A French, French fry cards or something, and we don't want that. The more you give it out, the cheaper it becomes. So now let's jump back to 1 Timothy, and let's look at these qualifications, and this is probably all we're going to have time for. I won't get to the deacon's office tonight, and that's okay. 
First Timothy chapter three, and I'm I'm reading in the King James, but we'll stop and give a pro, uh, approximate Hebrew expl- uh, Greek explanations. Uh, and your translation, if you're a more modern translation, may say something very similar. So Paul said, "A bishop then must be blameless." So we'll just go through these. We'll stop where we need to. Blameless means above reproach. Elders must be above reproach. If you want to be a leader in the local church, if you want to be an elder, you must be above reproach. And every one of us ought to want to be that way anyway. And I will point out that it starts off by saying elders are men. Now, when we appoint elders, we believe husbands and wives are called together. One of the other bigger pictures you see is that wives can disqualify pastors. Wives can disqualify deacons and wives can disqualify husbands. Elders. And so there are standards for wives later on in this chapter, which means you can't just be a fantastic guy and have some kind of milk toast nagging wife at the house who's a belligerent and a gossip and a slander. You won't, we won't be able to use you because you guys are one. Plus, your wife is a representation of your leadership ability. And it may not be you taught her how to gossip, but you sure didn't rebuke it out of her. So please hear me, men. Your family is a representation of your ability to lead. And it, you don't have to sow sin into kids for it to come up. It's just there. But if it comes up and you don't do anything about it, that's also a reflection of your leadership inability. I don't have to sow sin into the congregation to have to deal with it. You guys will go find it and bring it. You know, it's not like we get some kind of transgender salesperson in here it's not only just kind of weird because they think they're gender fluid or something. I don't know. Check your motor oil if you got gender fluid. You probably mix the two liquids together. And you want to come in here and sell us some kind of pyramid marketing scheme. I can't say, Lord, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't teach that. They didn't learn that from me. It doesn't matter, moron. It's in your camp. Deal with it. I don't know where my kid's getting this from. We didn't teach it to them. doesn't matter, dummy. It's in your house. Fix it. I don't, this is, I don't want, this is, it's like saying, Lord, I don't know why I have these crazy thoughts. I don't watch anything weird. It doesn't matter. They're in your head. Get rid of them. <laughs> I thought we had a doctrine of demonology around here until we don't. One wife, that means no polygamy. Some will take a hard stance that says a one wife man. What if he's a widower? Does he not get to remarry? Even under the law, he did. Even under the law, if she left or was a pervert, he could remarry. New Testament says he can put her away for fornication. Paul goes further in 1 Corinthians 7, says if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother's not bound. So this isn't just you've only been married once because that wouldn't be fair to, at the very least, the widower who remarries or the man who's been abandoned, or the woman who's been abandoned, or the man whose uh, wife committed adultery and fornication. He had to put her away. So no polygamy. That was a common issue in the early church. Vigilant. Now this word, King James, is vigilant. This, the Greek means self-controlled emotions. So this is a man, the modern translations will say calm. Calm. Why does an elder have to be calm? Because you deal with God's people. You got to be able to keep your cool, not just self-controlled, 
Vigilant is a new King James, but the, the Hebrew, excuse me, the Greek is self-controlled in your emotions. And a lot of the not modern translations will say calm or collected. Things don't move you. Or it take a lot. Now, that's not to be mistaken with like stone or chill. That's not acceptable either. An elder's got to have a gumption and a drive. There's no lollygagging on the elder board. All of our elders are very driven men. They are very successful. So it isn't just like, hey, man, it isn't like, you know, Matthew McConaughey and, hey, you know, they're fornicating. All right, all right, all right. You know, it's none of that foolishness, but they don't get moved very easily. Things blow up among sheep and you got to walk in there and say, all right, well, what's your side of the story? What's your side of the story? Let's judge this. So self-controlled emotions, calm, sober. That means to have a sound mind. That's the Greek word, a sound mind. Elders have to have a sound mind. That means you're, you're disciplined over vain imaginations. You don't get into your head over what people are saying or what people are thinking. Good, that's one of my favorite Greek words, cosmios. It means a well-arranged life. Hoarders need not apply. A hoarder... A hoarder's house is a reflection of their soul. And a Christian's car is a reflection of their discipline. And in this region, Lord of mercy. A brand new car smells like it's seven years old with five kids in a month in this region because of French fries and chips and Coke cans and newspaper and just that back seat is not a trash bin. Amen. Why'd you get quiet on that? Everybody sat down. It's not like we have like parking lot inspectors. But we may have just invented a new ministry role. Who wants to be backseat inspectors? Ministry of helps. Pastor, we'll help you. We have to judge you of an elder. I want to be an elder. We're going to judge your backseat now. I know when you have kids, it's a little bit harder, but if you teach them, they'll catch it. Cosmos, that's the word where we get the word cosmos from, arranged, organized, well-arranged lifestyle, well-arranged behavior. You're not like a dizzy idiot. You're not always flying in with your hair on fire, coming in on two wheels. Uh, people who are of good behavior don't show up late every service. I would never promote someone to eldership who is always late. What kind of standard is that set? You haven't mastered the same 24 hours a day that I've been given? We'll never be able to use that person because their life is not well arranged. Hospitality. Uh, that means you like having people come over. You don't just do it. You enjoy it and you're good at it. And people feel welcomed in your home. Some folks have people over. They don't enjoy it. And everybody knows they don't enjoy me being here. <laughs> or, or you go over to their house and there's 5,000 rules and you feel like you're in a internment camp. <laughs> Everything's wrapped in plastic. You know, and do I, do I need to get a bathroom pass? You know, can we drink? Can we drink now? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that person doesn't have hospitality. Teacher, apt to teach, that means competent to teach. That implies that you know scripture enough. You've, you've walked out the mysteries. You've walked with God enough. You have something to say, and you do say it. Not given to wine, that means you're not a wine bibber. Uh... Old Testament culture is a little bit different than today, first century church. The culture of Israel is such that their wine was more abundant than water. 
and there's a lot more to say to that, but we would go with the aspect that whatever your behavior is, you want to make sure there's nothing in your private life that causes people to stumble. Alcohol today causes everybody to stumble except the drunkard. And any church I know that teaches moderation has alcoholism in their ranks. And any church with alcoholism in their ranks always has adultery right behind it. Amen. Not a striker. We wouldn't believe some folks just want to fight. Now, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a probably a little bit more cosmopolitan, even though I've lived in Cookville now for most of the biggest portion of my life. But I hear like hillbilly stories. And you wouldn't believe the fights that happen in churches. And it shocks me. I've heard stories of having shotguns pulled on pastors by their deacons over doctrine. I've heard of deacons getting in fistfights. I was asking one of the um, funeral directors at the funeral this week. I always like to ask the funeral directors, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen? Actually, the one guy, this is me. I, some people open up their foot, up mouth and insert their foot. I typically, I've learned I open up my mouth and insert like a hand grenade. <laughs> so I was talking to these funeral home directors Monday night. I always like to find their little room and chat them up. And I said, what's, What's the weirdest stuff you've ever seen? I said, I bet you've seen some weird stuff. He said, yeah. I said, I bet it's been a Mason's funeral. He said, I'm a Mason. <laughs> and my heart says, of course you are. Of course you are. Of course you are. Because I said it. Of course you are. But the other director who's an old school guy, he's been doing it like 50 years. He said, you wouldn't believe how many times I've been shot at in White County during, during doing funerals. I said, what? Now, here's the other part that just blows my mind in this day and age. Happened just recently to them. The family fights over whether, where they're going to bury grandma. Or somebody doesn't want that woman buried on his family cemetery. And so they'll get in a fight. He said, we just the other day had to call the sheriff out to tell them, to tell them, please stop shooting at us. I said, like shooting in the air? He said, no, we heard the bullets whizzing around us. <laughs> Probably a Church of Christ deacon is I know Sparta. The other thing they'd tell me, because you're wondering weird stories, and I'm sure Rick has seen some now because he works in the funeral business. He said, we actually just saw a family. Their mother died. They put down her perfectly healthy dog just to bury it with grandma. Is that right, Rick? You seen something? Yep. That's when you know we got a pet problem. Why would you waste perfectly good meat? We got to keep reading here. Not a striker. When you're shooting guns because grandma's buried in the wrong cemetery, that's not eldership material. And you know, White County's got churches up to your eyeballs in every direction. Everybody goes, well, Peter, are those your people? You're a Sparta person. I'm sure. Those are your people? You shot some people at funeral? Well, those are your favorite. You know who I'm talking about. You're like, yeah, we do it all the time. Just, just to watch those funerals go faster. <laughs> See how fast can they crank grandma on the ground? <laughs> it's worse than Normandy. Get them in the ground. <laughs> Not greedy. You, greedy means shady concerning money. So, to me, this is someone who has lived in the sales industry way too long. You can be an honorable salesperson, but we know the stereotype. That's the attitude. They didn't have salespeople back then like we do today. But we, we know the, the stereotype. Again, stereotypes have truth to them. Uh, don't be that way. That's not worthy. That's not a worthy 
eldership quality. Patient. This word really means a lot to me. I did a deeper study on it. Peaceable, gentle. When you're patient there, it says uh, in verse 3, but patient, not, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, it means conciliatory. It means you're very eager to always reconcile with anything you're out of sorts. You just, you can't hold a grudge. Elders, if you're going to be an elder, you can't be a grudge-holding individual. You can't be a part of what this new thing is called grievance culture. We know, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody today blames somebody for something that happened a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or 60 years ago. If you're going to be an elder, if you want to be an elder, there can be no grievance. That's holding a grudge. That violates the law of forgiveness. And if you can't drop the charges, no matter what they are, you won't be able to be used of God as an elder bishop. Because what you'll do is teach other folks how to hold grief and grievances. You'll teach them it's okay because I hold a grudge. So this word patient, it isn't just like we understand to just be patient and wait. Peaceable. It's actually an active term. You are eager to reconcile. You want to make things right in every direction. Because honestly, that's the role of an elder. As elders, we have to kind of jump into the middle of bed babies or children's church or the evangelism team where we're supposed to be on the same team, but we don't like how she said this, and I've never been so disrespected in my life over that. And we have to jump in there and reconcile people. And that's patient because not everybody wants to drop the charges. Some folks like holding the grievance because it means they don't have to be responsible. And that's not biblical. Not a brawler. Funny, it would say striker and brawler. So we're really emphasizing the fact that elders have to be peacemakers, not fighters, not looking to get even, not looking to jump ship, not looking to be offended. You're starting to see the picture that the elder really does have to be like a shepherd and be willing to absorb a lot. Covetous or not covetous. That means a lover of money. You can't be a lover of money as an elder because we're going to trust you with God's people and you might want to work them. We're very guarded with God's people and his money. And so uh, that's not necessarily an issue here, but it might be if you came from Atlanta or live in Atlanta or a big city where people chase money or are neck deep in avarice. Verse 14 really bogs it down. Excuse me, verse 5, number 14. There's 17 qualifications here. Uh, This number 14 is this rules well their own house. Rules well his own house. That means to superintend. To rule well means to superintend or give attention. And to do it well, the word well there means beautifully or commendably. So you superintend beautifully. You don't just superintend. Hitler superintended Nazi Europe. We wouldn't call that beautiful or commendable. So the word rules well in the King James means to superintend commendably. And that's a high compliment when somebody says, I want to commend you on your family. I want to commend you on your children. I want to commend you on the harmony of your household. Ver- the point 15 in verse 5, or second part of verse 4 says, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Children subjected means an honorable obedience. They don't obey out of fear. Some folks can be Nazis. We keep using that term. But Nazis and the children obey out of fear. This is not what that's saying. It's not a fearful, a fear-based obedience. It's an honor-based obedience. I love mommy and daddy, and I want to please them. And they're my heroes. And yes, I get spanked and I get whooped, but 
I have to be spanked because I, I'm disobedient. And it's, this may sound lunacy to you, but it's not hard to accomplish in your house. If you're calm and collected, then when you spank your kids, you're not angry, and they realize, I got to be spanked. I disobeyed. And unlike modern psychologists and academics who say you'll put, 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 put a speech impediment in your kid for whipping them, my kids get beat like Cherokee drums, and they speak fine. Yeah. All this research on spanking does damage. Now, you're talking about child abuse. Yeah, I'm not talking about child abuse. I'm talking about go stand by that paddle. Your bum's about to find out I'm not happy with you. And my kids will play with that paddle till it's time to get whipped with it. Sometimes they'll remind me, you said you're going to spank me. Here, let me go get you the paddle. Can we get this over with? And I'll pull their britches down, wear those little cheeks out. Three licks, whack, whack, whack. And we go on with life. We pray. That's the other thing I don't do that maybe some of us failed at. I don't hold it over their head for the next seven hours or seven days. We pray. We dry up the tears. I kiss them. I tell them I love them. And whatever we were doing before we got in trouble, we go right back to doing it. Because they repented and I forgave them and restored them just like my father does me in heaven. I confess my sin. He rebukes me. He corrects me. He restores me. And we go right back to fellowship. Amen. So no, 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 no speech impediment if you do it right. How do you know it isn't all the medicine you have them doped up on or all the YouTube you have them watching? Don't blame the paddle. We quit spanking and look at our crime rate. Plus, you talk to the Africans. I see Tai smiling at me. I've heard African stories. I heard how Nigerians get spanked. That's like the Spanish Inquisition. I've heard about Nigerians getting tied down to a chair and getting beat with a cane. Oh, yeah. The belt I got, I'll take that seven days a week. <laughs> yeah. Honorable obedience. Verse 5 asks, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, that includes his wife. And the word rule uh, goes on to say, How shall he take care of the church of God? The word care there means it denotes a direction of the mind toward the object cared for. So he's not just talking about his kids, but a husband has to have a mind towards his wife. And we've taught this. We don't have too much time to go into it. But according to Ephesians 5, a husband is to help disciple his wife and to bring her into a higher level. So elders have to also know how to disciple their wives and bring their wives up to higher levels. As a pastor, I'm expected to constantly grow. My wife, as the pastor's wife, as mommy pastor, she's expected to grow. Elders are expected to constantly grow. We can't plateau in our Christianity. We can't be stagnant. If you imagine, go back to the 12 pools and the 70 palm trees. Do you think year after year those palm trees stayed at the same height or did they keep growing? It is possible for people to come in and be elders and grow with the ministry and then stop growing at some point and become the shortest palm tree at the oasis. What happened? I don't know. It's not the soil's condition. It isn't the oasis condition. All the other palms are flourishing. Something has tripped up. So that comes back to this, that the husband has to know how to rule well his family. The previous verses deal all with him internally. His heart concerning money, his heart concerning, concerning strife, his heart concerning offense, his heart concerning unforgiveness, his heart concerning uh, 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 his life, his order, the cosmos. And then if he will work on himself, he won't be, help but be able to work on his family, his wife, because you're supposed to have a wife before you have kids. And then kids come along and you've 
gotten pretty good at discipling your wife. Don't mean to be sexist, but just biblical. And then your kids come along, and the two of you work together to raise your kids up. But listen, husbands, if you don't disciple your wives and she stays fragmented or whatever immature level of Christianity she was at, then she's going to be discipling your kids from an undisciplined life. Now, here's the other concept you have to understand. God accepts us where we're at, and there's a lot of grace today, but tomorrow he expects us to grow. And if we grow, we keep the same amount of grace. But if we don't grow, we start to lose the grace. And so we're all a mess wherever we're at tonight, but we ought to be less of a mess next year and less of a mess two years from now. And it's possible to get stagnant. And it's always an internal mechanism that just turns off and sits down and says, this is as far as I want to go. And when you get married as young people or even as middle-aged people, you're at a certain level. And then God expects you to grow, expects the husband to disciple his wife along. She's supposed to grow And as she grows, now you're ready to have kids. But if you don't ever disciple your wife, then your kids are discipled by a wife who's out of date spiritually, for lack of a better term. But maybe if she's out of date, it's because you're out of date. If I'm actively growing, I'm going to require everybody around me to actively grow. Like working out. If I'm miserable, you're going to be miserable with me. (laughs) If I'm spending money, you're spending money. We're in this together. But you can always tell a lukewarm church, because it's led by a lukewarm man because he has no requirements on his people. His standard is a reflection of his private walk. They usually grow really big churches. The bigger the church, the lower the standard. Typically, 95% of the time. And if you're thinking of a church, you say, well, not that church. It's the exception. Then I would hope it is an exceptional church but I would be willing to bet it may not be. If you don't know how to rule your own house, how shall you take care of the church of God? Uh, Point 16 says, not a novice. That is a Greek term, neophyte, which means not a newly planted one. You can't be a baby Christian and be an elder. We got to put some experience. And just because you've been around 20 years doesn't mean you're qualified still. Bamboo grows feet overnight. Cedar trees take hundreds of years. You and I totally control how fast we grow. And the reason we want high quality elders is so that people have somebody to look up to. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. We want to make sure that our elders are not novices, lest being lifted up in pride, with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, the elder, the qualifier, he must have a good report Or the Greek says, a beautiful testimony of them who are outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I've worked in the world for a long time before I was pastor. I still have a lot of interactions in the world. And in our town, it's not surprising that most people you encounter who are local are Christians. But it usually is surprising after you've spent a couple hours with them and heard their mouth and they find out... you go, to, you go to church? Whoa, I was just about to witness to you. I was about to ask if I would cast something out of you. You're a deacon? After all that language? Everybody here works with somebody like that. You're shocked to find out they're the worship leader. You're shocked to find out they sing in the choir. They're on the hiring committee at their denominational church. And they have that kind of mouth? That person, according to Paul's standard, would not qualify to be an elder because they don't have a beautiful testimony outside the church. Amen. 
Part of the church's reputation is reflected in the individuals. We all know of a church or churches in our region that when you meet people from that church, you're like, well, that explains everything. There are churches with the drinking reputation. There are churches with a fornication reputation. There are churches with a soul-winning reputation. There are churches with a prayer reputation. There are churches with a carnal, sensual reputation. Our reputation ought to be a reflection of our church. That's why, you know, we, we, do, we have engrafted word church shirts. I ask you, please don't wear them in public if you're going to be an idiot. I don't want you advertising my church at Wooly Bullies. Does that place even exist anymore? Is it called Revolver? That's fitting. <laughs> Just same space, different bar. Don't wear it to Spanky's. Like, give it back. I'm not even going to buy it from you. Just give it back. I'll get you an AA shirt. We want our elders to have a good report of them which are without, lest you fall into the uh, reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, that's all we're going to get to tonight, so we're going to close the Bible there. I want all of you to know, hear me clearly, you can all aspire to be an elder. I don't have time tonight to get into the debate whether women, single women can be elders. I would never promote a woman to elder if she was married to a man. I'd have to be able to promote her man first. But I also want you to know, men, that your wife would be probably one of the greatest disqualifiers if I couldn't use you as an elder. So you have to discipline your wife or, or show your discipline in Christianity by reflecting it in your marriage. Also, that we, I'm not against female deacons. I, I wouldn't have a problem if we had a single lady, if she needed to be an elder. I'd, I'd appoint her to be an elder. She could be a tremendous help to other ladies in the church. I don't have a problem with female deaconesses. Because the Greek applies, uh, allows it. We have uh, Phoebe, uh, the great deaconess of the church at Sincrea, mentioned in Romans 16. So I don't have a problem with this. Other people in the body of Christ would disagree with me vehemently. They would call me um, uh, other, something other than a complementarianist. They would call me a little bit of a progressive. And yet my other doctrine would probably put them to shame. I think if you've got a gifting and a heart for the church and you have a high standard, we ought to be able to use you in leadership. There's always another role we can use you in. But this is, even if you don't want to be an elder or a bishop, even if that intimidates you, that's, that list right there shows you what Christian character looks like. And we're all called to aim for it. There's not a verse that says, you don't have to aim for that. You don't have to want the office of a bishop. You don't have to want that work. But you have to want to do all those things that are godly and, and pleasing. And if, if nothing else, look at what Christianity looks like when it's put into practice. You don't chase money. You're not a striker. You're patient. You want to be conciliatory. You want to reconcile everywhere you go. You're calm in your emotions. You're disciplined in your mind and in your appetites. These are praiseworthy qualities. These are evidences that God is able to succeed in our life. He doesn't just live in us. He succeeds in us. And these are evidences and fruits that he is successful. We can't hinder him. I would hate for God to be unsuccessful in my life. But you and I know that can happen. So anyway, we did not get through chapter 3. I knew it would slow down because this is where the government really kicks in. And I do want you to know, if you remember, chapter 2 concludes with the falling away of Hymenius and Alexander being delivered to Satan. Right, into chapter 1. Chapter 2 talks about let's resist sin, let's pray for everybody. Now we're talking about what strong Christians look like. Chapter 4 says, The Spirit speaketh expressly that some shall depart from the faith. The, it seems to be the heartbeat of 
of 1 Timothy is we're going to lose people. And you can hear Paul saying, and I don't want to see it anymore. So he's giving us tricks. He's giving us tips on how to make sure we don't fall away. Why not aspire to be something greater than mediocre? Be a, be a better Christian than your parents. Be a better Christian than your best friend. Be, be the greatest Christian you possibly can be, according to the Scripture. Amen?